This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Building Christian Women Warriors and Tacticians. And the author is Dr. Irene Revels Hawkins. And Dr. Hawkins joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Hawkins. Hello there. How are you? I'm doing well and great to have you here. Now, I'm going to read a brief introduction, a brief description that you wrote about your book. Just in one sentence, you say, This book is one of the most powerful tools in its most simplest form to help you to become spiritually strong and effective in spiritual warfare. That's a very comprehensive sentence right there. Uh, Spiritual warfare, we're going to talk about that in detail. But first, why write the book, Dr. Hawkins? I wrote the book, Steve, because the Lord had given me the actual tools and knowledge on how to be effective in spiritual battling or combat. Everyone reads the Word, but not everyone can comprehend how to effectively apply the word into their life in order to be effective in battling war. Well, you also write in your preface, you talk about, has, has it ever crossed your mind that the first war actually began in the heavens? Before the first war began, God, in his infinite wisdom, had already created an angel for war, Michael, the chief warring angel. So right from the start... You're saying that there was a war, war in heaven, and of course, Michael fought against Lucifer. Correct. This is so. And with that, knowing, having that knowledge and that tool, in our churches today, the mainstream of our teaching is we deal with spiritual combat, but not from the position of having or using all of the tools that we have available which is also dealing with the angels, us having command over angels, to have angels to war on our behalf, work on our behalf. Um, This is something that's not really, really taught. We focus more on basically getting the person right with God, knowing we have the tools, but not necessarily how to effectively execute them, Because become victorious spiritually in combat with the enemy. Because if there was a war in heaven, then that war goes on today. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's continuing today. We are a part of that war, and yet, in being a part of it, um, many of us are still not aware that how how we are a part of it. And therefore, the tools that we have to become effective in our warring, uh, we don't use. You say that Christ gave you a mandate to teach other women in the kingdom of God so that we may be victorious in our daily walk. Now, why do you feel you were given that kind of a mandate just to women? 
it wasn't just to women. It's actually to the body of Christ. However, um, I found that I'm very, very um, drawn toward women because of how we have been, through history, um, we have been made to believe in our latter history that women don't have a significant role and part in the body of Christ as we really do. And in order for the church to be fully effective, we have to use everything in the body of Christ and everyone that God has called into the right positions. And because there are uh, positions that God has called women to great and high positions, uh, a lot of women are intimidated to stand up and even say that God has called me to pastor, to, to teach, to preach, to go out. Um, and this book enables a woman to realize that that God has done, and it's not only now, this was done way back in biblical times, women of great status, God had called them to. And this is still today. But yet we need to be turn toward that direction to understand that this is still God's purpose in the body of Christ, that we hold those positions. You say that you would like your readers to learn how to be knowledgeable of the wiles of the devil. Now, that sounds a, a bit dark, and maybe we shouldn't go there, but at the same time, maybe we better learn so we can recognize. I think it's a wise thing to know. Um, Wisdom doesn't hurt anyone. It says we perish because of the lack of. Uh, the wiles of the devil, meaning the trickery. Um, oftentimes in my teachings, I try to explain to people that the wiles of the adversary, can we can be tricked by the adversary because too often we don't support what we do by the Word of God. And we go by emotions and feelings rather than actually basing our decisions on concrete word for a foundation on how to become and stay spiritually strong. What do you mean by the need to learn in a spiritual walk? Well, most of us learn when we read the Bible. However, you have to have the spirit of the author to truly understand what he's actually referring to. Um, you have to have the discernment of the Word, which is actually the Spirit of God, to open up your mind to know what is the mind of God as you read the Word of God. In one of your chapters, it starts out, Spiritual blindness is the primary weapon the adversary uses against the Spirit of God. Talk to us about spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Um, there are so many distractions today that deviate from the actual Word of God. As we read the Word of God, um, it's very easy to take on a personal interpretation of what the Word says. And in doing that, we become blindsided by what God is actually referring to. Um, our desires have a lot to do with that. Um, our teaching has a lot to do with that. Um, so if, in order for us to really be able to understand and to see what God would have us to do, we have to go
go back again to having his spirit, or we remain blind. He says, if the blind leaves the blind, then they both fall into the ditch. Referring to one has to have the spirit of God in order to help another to come out and receive the spirit of God to understand where God is leading us, where we can see the path of God. And there's so many different, different things and ways that people try to comprehend what God is saying, but um, that's not good enough. It's not good enough because God has made his way plain, straight, and it's actually very narrow. And he says, few there be that find it. One of your chapter titles, headings, says, Are you a Christian or a saint? <laughs> Why is that important to know? Well, one deals with uh, knowing and having a practice, and the other deals with having an application of God in your life. Um, a Christian is a person that honors Christ. I believe in Christ. I know of Christ. I honor his name. I don't necessarily practice anything that Christ has ordained for us to live. Uh, a saint is one that has taken on the name of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the baptism of Christ, and actually walks in the spirit of Christ. You also have a very, uh, well, I, I don't know what else to call it, but it's a rather profound uh, two words that you, you say in an appendix. You say traits of the Adamic nature. Now, what is the Adamic nature? The Adamic nature is our nature given by Adam. It's our fleshly nature. It's our, just our nature, Adam, the nature that we acquired from Adam. Um, we have a second nature, which is a spiritual nature that we're supposed to get as we get the Spirit of Christ, which deal with the fruits of the spirits, of the Spirit, I'm sorry. So we have the natural Adamic, from Adam, with, um, and then we have the spiritual, which deals with Christ. Now, you do talk about different women warriors from the Bible. Uh, give us an example. Deborah would be an example. Um, Deborah was actually a tactician, warrior tactician. Deborah's position as a prophetess, a mother, um, Deborah gave Barak, Barak a order to go out and to fight, um, and Barak would not go because he recognized the position and the authority that Deborah had. Therefore, he says, well, if you go, Deborah, then I'll go, because he realized this was a woman that God had given a great and high position to. What is dimensional warfare? Dimensional warfare deals with different levels of spiritual warfare. Um, we have a warfare that we deal with that is just a simple, it's a level of warfare. It's, it deals with simple things where we have our own thoughts and our own things that we deal with, that we war against, our own flesh, things that are in our flesh. Then we have another level of spiritual warfare that deals with our actual adversary. And this is where we get into fighting the adversary. So in the adversarial realm, 
there are rank and order of adversaries, uh, demonic forces, if we can say that. It's in the word. So there are demonic forces, which means they have ranks, such as Michael. Uh, this is actually displayed in the book of Daniel. You asked the question, baptism, does it really matter? Does it matter? Yes, it does. Um, baptism matters because, um, Steve, I say if you, had, if you were going to bake a cake from a recipe that your mother had given you, and she gave you a specific recipe and how to bake the cake, if you variate, or if there's a variation um, in your application of baking that cake, there's going to be a difference in the taste. Even if you take it out maybe 15 minutes sooner than it should come out, there's a difference. And when God gave his word to his apostles, he gave it to them to take out to the world. Therefore, baptism was a part of it, and therefore we need to understand and go back and get the original script and understand that baptism must be applied for the removal of sin. It matters. At the same time, there are a lot of churches that don't require baptism. Well, you know, there's a, there are a lot of churches that don't do a lot of things. And this is why people such as myself and other ministers have to carry the gospel on as the apostles have given it. So there is specific things that need to be done in this life uh, according to the Word of Christ, and that's what you're trying to point out and be very specific in this battle, uh, this spiritual warfare battle. Correct. That is exactly what I'm saying. We have to do it the way Jesus has left it on record with the apostles to take out to the world. So what from his word. So what is the battle cry? The battle cry is a spiritual yearning inside where women that have the same mandate, young women that God has called that don't quite know yet where and how to come into the knowledge of how to get their lives together spiritually, um, there's a yearning in inside of them. So the battle cry is something that we're crying out to. I'm crying out to the world and saying, come on, women, not just women, men, those that need help understanding what Jesus wants us to do and how we're to do this thing. It's time now. Let's go. It's time to gear up, gird up the loins of your mind, put on your breastplate, put on your shoes. It's time now to go out and truly do what Jesus wants us to do. And you write, this book is only the platform to set up for the sequel of other books. Correct. Um, right now, Steve, I'm in the process of, I have, I'm writing two other books at the same time right now, and they're actually uh, number two and three. Um, I can't, I'm not going to give you the names yet. <laughs> understand. But... This, these books are actually helping you to build, as it says, building Christian women warriors. It's going to help women to further their growth 
in building, something more to build on to. It's dissecting the Bible, salvation, to help them to build, to have a strong foundation in salvation. And you have a website. Yes, I do. That website is the, I'm sorry, tacticiansforchrist.com. Um, That's my website, tacticiansforchrist.com. And besides your website, where else can we get your book? You can actually, there are Barn and Noble Bookstore, um, Amazon, I, Amazon. And there are different places that are mentioned on the website where you can also go to get the book. Well, Dr. Hawkins, we appreciate you sharing all your insights and your philosophy about your new book. So thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Oh, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Irene Revels Hawkins. She is the author of her book, Building Christian Women Warriors and Tacticians. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Old Lady of Vine Street, The Valiant Fight for the Cincinnati Inquirer. And the author is Dr. Richard K. Maston. And Richard joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Richard. Hello. How are you? Good to have you with us. Now, I'm going to read, read a short 
introduction, kind of in general, about what your book is about, you write, The Old Lady of Vine Street is the story of a small band of reporters who had the courage to risk everything they had for their belief in the importance of a free and independent press. They had the audacity to fight the powerful Taft family for the right to buy their own newspaper, affectionately known as the Old Lady of Vine Street. Of course, we also know it as the Cincinnati Inquirer. So why, Richard, why write the book? The man who led the fight for the employees was James Ratliff. He was an investigative reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer following a wonderful career in the Army during World War as a counterintelligence officer. Uh, Jim Ratliff was a close friend of mine, and I heard this story many times of the fight for the paper. And finally, uh, near the time of Jim's death in 1994, I asked him for a copy of anything that he had about about what happened, newspaper articles, any reports or letters he had written. So I got his complete file. And after Jim died, I decided something needed to be written about what happened. And I really wrote it in honor or to honor my friend Jim Ratliff. He led led that fight for the employees that lasted six months for an impossible, an impossible or seemingly impossible objective. And that was for the employees to buy the paper rather than the Taft family. That's why I wrote it, to honor Jim Ratliff, and um, that that's the reason. Of course, the, we go back in history, the Taft family, Robert Sr. Taft, who was also, I guess, called Mr. Republican? That's right. And he was... The year was 1952. Robert Taft was running for the presidency. Another Taft was running for governor. And the owners of the... Time Star, the Taft family, in secret were trying to buy the Cincinnati Inquirer. And Robert Taft, Mr. Republican, was the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination. He was ahead of Eisenhower in January of 1952. And the people who had control of the paper, it was the American Security and Trust Company. And in 1916, they took control of the Cincinnati Inquirer and the Washington Post. And they were the trustees, basically, for those two newspapers for the McLean family. The McLean family are famous because Mrs. McLean owned the Hope Diamond and gave it to the Smithsonian. They were a very uh, influential family, as you can appreciate. But they gave control to the American Security and Trust Company. In 1933, the American Security Trust Company sold, in a duress sale, distress sale, they sold the Washington Post for $833,000 to Eugene Myers, Catherine Graham's father. It was probably the greatest purchase of a newspaper in the history of newspaper or journalism. $833,000 for a paper today worth many billions. But they sold it, and uh, they held on to the Enquirer. So in 1951, they started secret negotiations with the Taft family. The Taft family wanted to buy a morning newspaper. Their own paper, the Times Star, was an afternoon paper, and they wanted a morning paper, and they wanted... The the premier paper in that city was and always has been the Cincinnati Inquirer, and they wanted that paper. 
So they began secret negotiations with American Security and Trust Company. Now, the American Security and Trust Company wanted to sell it to the Taft family because they figured just down the street from their office in Washington, D.C., was going to be the next president, Robert Taft. So it was in their interest to uh, to uh, desire the Taft family uh, purchase the paper. So here's an upstart group of employees who, when they heard about it, were completely surprised and shocked that uh, the trust company would sell to the Taft family without anybody knowing about it. So that's where this story begins in January of 1952. And James Ratliff at that time was a reporter for the paper? Investigative reporter, been with reporter off and on for some eight, ten years. And Jack Cronin and, uh, was he also... recently returned uh, from counterintelligence in, in uh, Germany, where he was second in command in the Munich office. And so he had a background of investigation uh, that other reporters did not have. And so when he heard about the story, he met with five of his colleagues... And in secret, they planned what they might do uh, to buy the paper. And they knew that if it became known that they were what they were doing, they'd probably be fired. So they did it very quietly. And uh, they realized their only only hope was uh, there had to be a hearing in a federal district office, a district court, uh, for the paper. And uh, that hearing had not been scheduled yet. But the reason for the hearing was that there were minors involved. McLean, uh, John McLean's great-grandchildren were involved. And because minors were involved as potential heirs of whatever would be received for the Cincinnati Inquirer, there had to be a federal court hearing. And their only chance they knew was to get into that hearing and uh, make an offer on their own for the, uh, for the paper. Uh, the, the odds were, uh, at that point in January, when they first heard of it, were probably uh, 10,000 to 1. And they Nobody felt, and they they felt had a chance, but they said, we got to try. And they felt very driven because they felt this importance of a free and independent press. They felt that if the Taft family took it over, they would obviously be used for their own per- political purposes. Absolutely. The Cincinnati Inquirer had been a supporter, Republican supporter, all along. Every paper in Cincinnati supported uh, the Taft family. But uh, I'm sure they wanted it for even greater support than they might expect uh, from the uh, present uh, publisher. Uh, The present publisher, Roger Ferger, was uh, involved in the secret negotiations. And uh, he and his, the lawyer for the Cincinnati Enquirer were the only two, really, that knew uh, about the about the sale outside of the Taft family. So how did the employees, James Ratliff leading the employees, how did they come up with the money? <laughs> that was really interesting. They had a man from uh, American Management in New York. Uh, unknown, he was brought in by the... Uh, the uh, inquirer's lawyer, who thought that uh, that uh, that Martindale, who was the president and treasurer of the American Institute of Management, he had done a study of the uh, inquirer in 1950. And they brought him in because they wanted him to discourage the employees. They said, "Look, it's a hopeless cause. You're only causing trouble." And by the time that that everybody knew what they were doing by this time, but when they brought Martindale in. They felt he would discourage them. Well, in 
in uh, fact, he did everything but discourage them. He encouraged them. He said, you can buy this paper. He said the price of $7.5 million pays for itself. It, it's, it's practically a gift. And the employees had figured this out, too, because the conditions were that the Taft family would have 12 years to pay the $7.5 million. In those 12 years, they would make enough money every year to pay their debt. <laughs> so, in fact, it was, in its essence, a gift. And so um, Martindale said, you can do it. And uh, he said, but what you've got to do is you've got to get these employees fired up so they make a contribution and they put their money on the line. And so in late March, over a weekend, the employees came together with over a million dollars of pledges. Those pledges were based on uh, uh, bank loans, their loans on their cars, loans on their homes, and they just mortgaged everything they could find to raise money. And uh, over a weekend, they raised a million dollars. And then, of course, they had to go out and find other money uh, for the rest of it. But they, the fact that they raised a million dollars really said, our employees at the Inquirer are really, they're really sincere about purchasing this paper. They want it. And they believed, I mean, the old lady of Vine Street was, was said with endearing words. <laughs> People that work for the Inquirer really love that old paper, and they wanted to they wanted to keep their hands on it. They didn't want it to go to somebody else, and they always felt that the Inquirer was such a, a superior paper to the Times Star that they didn't want it sold to an inferior paper. So that was the first million dollars. After that, they went to insurance companies, they went to banks, they went everywhere they could think of trying to borrow the money. And finally, uh, finally, they got a call from a, a man in the, it, right in Cincinnati, and he was with the Halsey Stewart bond firm. Now, Halsey Stewart doesn't mean much to people today, but Halsey Stewart was bought by Prudential Insurance some years ago. It was one of the biggest bond companies in America. And Hal Stewart was the owner of that company, and his brother was vice president. Well, they had an office in Cincinnati, and so the broker for the Hal Stewart company called Jim Ratliff, and he said, I've got a client here who says he's a friend of yours. He played basketball with you in night league. He said, you're the greatest tennis player uh, Cincinnati ever produced, and Jim Ratliff was. Jim Ratliff played against uh, guys that were in the... Uh, Tennis Hall of Fame, and he was an outstanding tennis player, and uh, he said, if anybody can lead that fight to victory, it's Jim Ratliff, and the guy said, could you stand alone, and Jim Ratliff said, boy, could we stand alone, and so the Hal Stewart people came down to inspect it, and they said, well, we're going to need a couple of months to, uh, you know, look things over, and Ratliff said, we haven't got a couple of months, we've got a couple of weeks. And he said, you're either going to give it to us or, you know, it's not going to happen. So through a period of weeks, and finally the Stewart Company was willing to loan the money. But every time they went down to the American Security and Trust Company, they said, look, we've already got a contract. We've got a good contract with the Taft family. And unless you can come up with something better, uh, you know, we're not interested in you. And finally, the, the time of the... Uh, the time for the trial came in late April of 19, 
52. And so they had no uh, no uh, place in that in that hearing. They had to have a law firm. And Martindale again, the president of American uh, Financial American Institute of Management, called and said, "I think I've got a law firm for you uh, in Washington D.C." And uh, the law firm is a prestigious law firm. Davies, Richburg, Tidings, BB and Landing. Now that no name don't mean much to people today, but Davies wrote Mission to Moscow. There was a movie made about his book. Davies was the father in law of another man uh in the firm named Millard Tidings. Now Millard Tidings may not mean much to people today, but he was the lawyer. He's a senator from nineteen twenty six to nineteen fifty. He was the he was the senator that headed the the uh, Senate committee to investigate charges by Joseph McCarthy in 1950 about the 205 communists uh, in the State Department, and the Senate passed a resolution. Am I still talking? Yes. They passed a resolution. Uh, to investigate McCarthy. They said, if his charges are true, we've got to do something. But if his charges are not true, we've got to stop him from making these kind of reckless charges. Well, they asked, they actually elected Millard Tidings to head that committee. And Millard Tidings said, that resolution is as broad as four mules walking side by side and whatever that committee does, it's going to be called a whitewash. And he tried to get the resolution uh, much more firm, but they didn't change a word. And he headed the committee. And sure enough, when the committee report came out in the summer of 1950, it was called a whitewash. The Republicans and Joseph McCarthy and the Washington and the Chicago Tribune worked against. Uh, Miller Tidings in Maryland and defeated him after 24 years in the Senate and 24 really distinguished years in the Senate. So now Miller Tidings is with his father-in-law's firm, Davies, Richburg, Tidings, Beebe, and Landy. And so they come to that firm and finally uh, Tidings says, I'll take the case. And so when they called the court hearing in April April 28th of 1952, Miller Tidings is there with him in the Washington District Court. The judge is Judge Olithia Laws, who is destined to become on the Supreme Court by everybody's estimation. A very, very, very fine federal judge. And so, how do they get to be part of that hearing? Well, they got an article in the Washington Post the night before on Sunday night, a reporter came to Ratliff's apartment or hotel room, and he said, I'd like to hear you know, what the employees are trying to do here. And he ran a wonderful story the next morning. They hoped that Judge Law saw that story and would allow the employees to speak up. And so when the court opened, Ratliff is sitting next to Senator Millard Tidings, and Judge Olithia Law says, is there a James Ratliff here in the audience? And uh, <laughs> Jim Ratliff stood up. Miller and Tidings said, he's right here, Your Honor. And he pushed him right up before the bench. And at that point, of course, the lawyers with the American Security and Trust Company and the lawyers uh, <laughs> the lawyers with the Times, Time Star for the Taft family just raised holy hell. So they have no place in this court. 
And uh, Miller Titus says, Your Honor, it seems to me that uh, for the benefit of uh, the heirs, it would be wise to have at least two bidders for the sale of this property. And I don't know why they're worried. Uh, if the employees can't come up with a better offer, then the Times Star and the Taft family should buy it. But I think we ought to be heard. And and uh, Judge Law says, well, I, I agree with you. I think you should be heard. <laughs> Timing well, is everything. Actually, it was a major breakthrough right. and allowed them to become part of the hearings. But then, even from then on, the uh, American Security and Trust Company were not willing to listen to the employees until finally, well, I won't go into the end of the story. Right. But uh, the fight seesaws back and forth for the next uh, two and a half months. What a story. What a battle for, you know, as you say, the importance of a free and independent press, a battle for really a, you know, the little people against the giants, right? It was the little people against the giants, and it was 1952 when we didn't have so many monopolies. In those days, the Federal Communications Committee was more stringent about monopolies, that newspapers could only own so many, uh, one radio station or one other television station right. in that same community. Today, we have monopoly after monopoly in which about five conglomerates own 80% of the airways and the, the newspapers. And so we have come to a point in time when we need more than ever a free press. And uh, well, what today a great... there's only one employee-owned newspaper. That's the Milwaukee Journal. And uh, the Cincinnati Enquirer uh, would have been uh, a great employee newspaper if they had if things had gone different than they did. Jim Ratliff uh, was fired. If you read the story, uh, I won't. I shouldn't go into that because that's that's after the. Right. Uh, that's another story. But uh, anyway, uh, do you have other questions? No, Richard, uh, just an incredible story, very dramatic and uh, all true. And tell us how to get your book, Richard. Well, uh, you can order it uh, through uh, iUniverse, of course. You can buy it, uh, order it from a bookstore. They'll, uh, they'll have access to it. You can order it through Amazon. I guess uh, I would recommend that they just order it through iUniverse. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Very interesting. You're very welcome, and thank you. That was Dr. Richard K. Maston. He is the author of his book, The Old Lady of Vine Street, The Valiant Fight for the Cincinnati Inquirer. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on Tugginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. 
The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Miracle of Me, a memoir. And the author is Alice Snow. And Alice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alice. Hello. Well, good to have you with us. This is quite an emotional story, a personal story, uh, your memoirs. And I'm going to read a little from your introduction to kind of set the tone, the theme of your book. You wrote this. I had come to the doctor for a routine test to check out something simple, a little hand numbness and sting of the wrist here and there. Today, an MRI revealed some type of mass growing in my brain. How life could change so drastically in a 24-hour period that time itself could go from being my greatest ally to my worst enemy. And I felt... I felt a swift kick in the pit of my gut that seemed to suck the oxygen right out of my lungs. Whoa, that's a, a lot of feelings there. Yeah. Uh, r- written very well, uh, too. So congratulations on your, your, your very uh, uh, pointed, emotional writer. It kind of goes right to into the heart. So I congratulate you on that. Why write this book? Why publish this book? That's a big effort. I wrote this book because I think I have a lesson to pass on to people. My whole life, I've been very giving to other humanity, but I've been very quiet about it. You know, you do it and it's done and you go on to something else. But I believe in writing this book, it will inspire others to do the same. I believe I've been presented a gift to be alive, and I am alive, and I will continue to do service in my community. There is no question in my mind I will continue to do service in my community. When did you first discover this tumor? I was 20 I, it was 15 years ago I discovered the tumor, 15 years ago today. And at that time, they gave me anywhere from three months to three years to live because it was very, very malignant. Well, certainly you have beaten all the odds, that's for sure, and we're grateful that you've been able to do that. Now, you you start out right at a young age. You're helping us see what's going on in your family. Uh, back what? Nineteen what? 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 Where do you take us back to? Nineteen sixty-four. Nineteen sixty-four. Yes, I was sixteen years old, 
And my father was a remarkable man. He was in World War II. We didn't speak about it, but he was a remarkable man. And he became a bill poster. Do you remember the signs hanging up on the uh, driveways and the streets? That it, my father did that. He posted signs. But we had an incident in the family where my uncle died, and he had a business of undertaker. And so my father took over that business, and that became a part of our family history. Now, you had an interesting relationship with your father that others didn't have in the family. Tell us about that. I was more serious. The other were, you know, the others were just kind of normal kids. I was always very, very serious. And so I think the relationship I had with my father was more, uh, I was a teenager, yes, but I was more... Uh, adult-like in my thinking, I believe, and that brought us closer together. And you kind of could read his mind, so to speak, just with the way he looked in his eyes. Yes, I could. He was a very, very, very kind man. So you must my have had a very. Also. You must have had a very special relationship with him. That's that's always great when a father daughter has that kind of relationship. Yes, and my mother, too, was a remarkable woman. She was a funny lady. My mother was a funny lady. We never had a down day at her, our house. She was fun and funny. So the book starts out back when you're 16 and goes over a span of how many years? Well, until present. Um, the book spans my life, my lifetime after the age 16, um, the uh, last episode in the book is just recent. Now, also, you traveled a bit through your life, and you took you take us on different travels to the different countries that you visited, and and uh, why were you in these other countries? I had the desire to see the rest of the world, quote unquote. But I started out in going to Europe, and I was. Uh, 19 years old, you know, I went to school full-time to the University of Minnesota, but I also worked full-time, so I lived at home, so I was in school full-time, and I worked full-time, and I saved money, you know, and I went to Europe by myself, which at that time was unusual, you know, there's a lot more tourists now in Europe, but that was back in 1967 when I went, and it was a wonderful experience. And also you went to South America. Yes. Now that's a whole nother story. I came back from Europe, went to school full-time, worked full-time. But I had a brother that was in Vietnam. And I felt, okay, this is not fair. He's in Vietnam. I need to do something. I need to do something productive. And so I very quietly uh, uh, signed up for a program that I could be part of the church in Bolivia. So I was a part-time missionary in Bolivia for a year. Well, these experiences of travel, of course, when we travel and we spend some time in a particular place, uh, we meet a lot of people and we learn a lot of things. Now, what were you learning at this time through your travels? Well, Bolivia at that time was the third poorest country in the world. And so when I got off the plane and took 
the taxi down to where I would be living. I had all that I could do but cry because of the poverty. I'd never seen anything like that before. I had never seen anything like that before. And so it all started from there. I got very involved with communities in Bolivia. And when you say you'd never seen anything like that before, what were you seeing? I was seeing poverty at its worst. You know, children that didn't have clothing, you know, no food for these people. They would eat bananas, but they didn't have food. They were very, very poor. And I was really uh, appalled at what I saw. It was uh, very, very heartbreaking for me. And so I became very involved with the Native people. I went originally to be a secretary to the bishop, and I did that the whole time I was there. But I wanted more. I wanted to be with the Native people. Now, I'm only 20 years old, and at age 20, nothing bothers you, you know. Nothing bothers you. I didn't mind my style of living. It didn't bother me at all. I was 20 years old. What are some of the people that had a very dramatic impact on you, people that were your mentors, teachers, you know, family possible? Well, my mother, she was a saint, so I'm going to give my mother a lot of credit. She never put her foot down when I wanted to do anything. She encouraged me to follow my dreams. My mother was an an incredible woman, and uh, she died fairly recently at age 90, so she was an incredible woman. I would say she, when I was young, when I was young, was my mentor. My mother was my mentor, and she was fun. Everybody loved my mother. You know, she was there for anybody that needed help. She was there, and so I saw her as being my mentor. Well, give us another person, uh, a teacher, a work associate, or someone who had a great impact on you. I would say the man that wrote my recommendation to go to Bolivia. I was only 20 years old, but I knew the man that was in charge of, uh, I was not uh, in the 4-H, but he was in charge of the 4-H in Minnesota, and He was a member of our church, and he wrote an elaborate, positive note on who I was and what I was doing in our community at age 20. And so it was because of him that I was able to go to Bolivia at age 20. I was the youngest, you know. (laughs) So did you feel driven to live up to these kinds of expectations? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. In fact, I was more driven than I expected. Well, that's an important part of our lives. If people show us our potential, and many people, though, don't grab a hold of it. You know, they unfortunately let it slip through their hands. But other people, and it's probably a small percentage, people like you who really grab a hold of it and really accomplish a lot in life, what would you say are some of the uh, great accomplishments that you feel were, you know, obviously noteworthy for your book. Oh, I did quite a bit in terms of, of uh, accomplishments and working with 
the underprivileged, not only in South America, but also in America. I just wanted to mention that when I came home from South America to be back with my family again, I'll never forget our first dinner. You know, Americans eat, you know, and sometimes they don't eat at all. And I'll never forget literally, quote-unquote, yelling at my younger brother who did not finish his chicken. <laughs> and everyone was kind of taken back. Right. You this were... was my first evening home. And then all of a sudden I realized, Alice, you're in Minnesota now. You know, you have to get used to the culture again. And also it was difficult for me when I first got back, you know, to relate to my friends, you know, I didn't, they were just used to American life, and I was, uh, I had seen so much difference, so that was difficult. Now, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just, you know, uh, asking about this, these expectations that you saw in yourself with others, the way they were talking about you, writing about you at a young age, uh, what kind of an effect did that have on you? What what were you what were you able to accomplish because of it? Well, I always became a coordinator of mission service wherever I lived. You know, in uh, Denver, I was a coordinator, and I helped develop. Now, this goes back before my brain tumor, so this goes back, you know, maybe eighteen years ago in Denver where we lived, and I helped develop a uh, home for the. Children, you know, by children I mean anyone between 10 and 20 that were homeless. And, and uh, I was very successful in, in helping that occur. And that made me feel really good. You know, the thing with any work that I did, I did it very quietly. I did it very, very quietly. You know, I just wasn't looking for any recognition. I just did it. I think probably because of my stay in Bolivia, I felt a need to continue doing those kinds of things. And what kind of an impact did all these experiences have on you to help you through this incredible challenge of dealing with a brain tumor? Well, I don't come out and say it, but I think that I'm being, in a way, rewarded for everything that I did. Now I have tears in my eyes because what I have is very serious. I have a malignant brain tumor. And when I went back to the hospital five years ago, they just thought, forget it. But I didn't forget it. I'm doing well, and I'm continuing to do well. So I'm grateful that I had the ability to do what I was able to do. Now, physically, I'm not able to do what I used to do, but I think writing this book will be a source of inspiration to other people. That's what I believe. That's why I wrote it. So you've had all kinds of different treatments, I'm sure. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I've been under radiation a couple of times. I've been uh, operated on and... In fact, that's kind of a cute story. I had a wonderful, wonderful love story, and that's in the book as well. But my husband, actually, I'm going to put this in quotations, lied to me. When they first went in to take a look at my brain tumor and to pull some of it out, it was so malignant and so deep 
that they couldn't take any of it out, except just a sample, you know, to check the malignant, a small sample to check the malignancy. Anyway, my husband said, oh, they removed 25%. And that lie kept me going. That lie kept me going. And then I found out, you know, in, with a recent return <laughs> that they didn't take it. And I thought, bless his heart, you know, he kept me going. Well, just listening to you, Alice, you would never know that you've been through these incredible tough experiences. You sound so full of life, and I'm sure you are because of all your experiences and all you've done. And, and in spite of the brain tumor, you're determined to live life to its fullness right now, it sounds to me. Oh, yes. I wake up every morning. I look out the window, and I am very, very grateful. Absolutely, I am. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through iUniverse.com. iUniverse.com. And it's also available through Amazon. And also you can get it from me. Do you have a website? Yes. And what is that? My website is Alice, A-L-I-C-E, Snow, S-N-O-W, Killam, K-I-L-L-A-M, at gmail, G-M-A-I-L dot com. Well, very good. We appreciate you sharing a few elements of your life and of this book you uh, we wish you the best and our prayers go with you alice i know that you're going to be an inspiration to those around you and especially to those who buy your book so thank you thank you that was alice snow she is the author of her book the miracle of me a memoir iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.